Okay, hi everybody. We are speaking to you. This is Danielle Karopkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario um, for webyeshiva.org. We are studying Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, Morena Vuchim. Um, and uh, we are now in the third section studying chapter 15. Um, let's get our bearings. Let's see where we are. We are in the middle of a discussion of the Rambam talking about divine providence, about the fact that God is omniscient and omnipotent and is guiding mankind and is in control of the entire system of creation. And yet, for some reason, God allows for the existence of evil and uh, and of flaw and of defect and of corruption to exist in his flawless creation. So this seems to be somewhat of a problem, a philosophical dilemma for the Rambam. And uh, the paragraphs that have been leading up to here have been discussing how, um, despite the fact that evil does exist, um, God keeps this evil to a minimum and limited to the human condition. And the Rambam devoted the last chapters, therefore, to, to explaining how humanity really comprises a very small component of all of creation, thus minimizing the existence of evil in God's perfect creation. Uh, we're going to get back to this discussion of the, the, human, the human source of evil, but this chapter is a philosophical interlude that is really setting us up for the next several discussions about this paradox, the fact that we, we do uh, encounter many times in our religious thought certain things that are contradictory about God and about his system of justice and uh, about his perfection versus the fact that seems there, there seem to be things in his creation that are not perfect. And really, the um, I guess what we would call the, this chapter would be, what is impossible for God? And are there things that we say about God that God cannot do? And are there things that we say about God that God can do? And in order for us to really appreciate how this fits into the frame of, of our discussion today, uh, allow me to share my screen with you um, and share with you just a, an encyclopedia entry. Um, about the, the, the idea called the omnipotence paradox. The omnipotence paradox uh, is this concept in, uh, that really takes off in medieval philosophy. It says it's a family of paradoxes that arise with some understandings of the term omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. The paradox arises, for example, if one assumes that an omnipotent being has no limits, and is capable of realizing any outcome, even a logically contradictory one, such as creating a square circle. Can a circle be square? Can a circle have corners? Well, of course you say, well, by, very, by its very definition, it's impossible for a circle to be a square or to have corners, because then it wouldn't be a circle anymore. But then you would come back and counter, well, if God is capable of doing anything, then God should be able to create something that is uh, even a logical paradox. And this, of course, uh, leads us into th through many centuries of conversation leading to um, the philosophy of language and, uh, and sort of 
attributing artificiality to the human construct of language, which is where why we get into these paradoxes, which aren't really real. But if we go back to the medieval period, which is what we're studying in the Rambam, he says, the, the encyclopedia entry says, the omnipotence paradox has medieval origins dating at least to the 10th century, when Sajigon responded to the question of whether God's omnipotence extended to logical absurdities, like can a circle have corners? It was later addressed by Averroes and Thomas Aquinas. Pseudo-Dionysius, the uh, Areopagite, has a predecessor version of the paradox, asking whether it is possible for God to deny himself. The best-known version of the omnipotence paradox is the paradox of the stone, which you've probably heard anyone who's studied anything about philosophy knows this question. Could God create a stone so heavy that even he could not lift it? This is a paradoxical question, because if God could create something he could not do, then he would not be omnipotent. Similarly, if God was able to lift the stone, then that would mean he was unable to create something he could not do, leading to the same result. Alternative statements of the paradox include, if given the axioms of Euclidean geometry, can an omnipotent being create a triangle whose angles do not add up to 180 degrees? And can God create a prison so secure that he cannot escape from it? So you see where you see the the general theme of the omnipotence paradox. Well, the Rambam is interested in expanding this discussion beyond the few short uh, sentences that Rav Sajigon had written in his in his Emunot Videot. The Rambam really wants to expand on this point, and he's actually addressed this issue before at the end of the uh, first section of the guide, when he was talking about some of the Kalamist ideas. Um, and he's going, he's actually revisiting that. Now, why is this important for our discussion now? Well, we're talking about a, a, a divine paradox, aren't we? I mean, we're talking about the existence of evil um, that emanates from a God who is absolute perfection and is the antithesis of evil. How can God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, allow for the existence of evil uh, if, indeed, everything that we know about God is that he is the opposite of evil and, which, and does not abide evil, and yet God does abide evil? Uh, and that really is where we're headed when we start Chapter 16, which will be our next discussion next week. But for the for the time being, this is chapter 15, where we, we, we are setting ourselves up for this discussion. And on the one hand, the Rambam wishes to stay faithful to his philosophical forebears, who do not allow for these philosophical contradictions or impossibilities or paradoxes. But at the same time, uh, there seems to be some sort of equivocation in the language of the Rambam in this chapter, that sometimes what seem to be logical impossibilities actually can exist when we're talking about God. And so here is where we're, we're, this is where we're going in this whole discussion in our, in our chapter. So let's look at the brief outline of this chapter. Point number one, it is a given that there are certain logical impossibilities that do not present a contradiction to God's omnipotence. To suggest that they are possible is to go completely against the nature of God. So to suggest, for example, that God could create a prison so secure that he cannot escape from it 
is a logical impossibility that can never enter into the realm of possibility. Now, I do want to point out that the language of the beginning of the chapter is somewhat confusing and misleading. Uh, like, for example, in the Pines edition on page 459, he opens the chapter by saying, the impossible has a stable nature, one whose stability is constant and is not made by a maker, and it is impossible to change it in any way. So all the Rambam means by that language, and perhaps it might have been translated in a more, let's say, um, clear way, is to say that there are certain things that are in the realm of impossibility, and they can never change from being impossible to possible. And then, by contrast, the Rambam says, however, there are certain imaginable things, and that word imaginable is key, because we've seen before the Rambam talk about the imagination faculty of the mind using Aristotelian uh, science about, about the mind. Um, and we know that there's something called the imagination faculty, the part of our mind that is able to take uh, images from memory, things that we've perceived and, and uh, experienced through sensory perception, and take two images and combine them together to create something that doesn't even exist in the real world. So we know that the imagination faculty, what a person can think of, is capable of conjuring ideas and concepts that cannot and should not exist in the real world. So, uh, you know, for example, you can, uh, you know, thinking about a bird and thinking about a lizard and putting them together in your imagination conjures a, a flying dragon, which doesn't exist in the real world. So there are certain imaginable things that seem to be logically and physically impossible, yet there is a dispute among the men of speculation, people, people who are part of the philosophical realm, as to whether these things are within the realm of possibility. Example, so then the Rambam he keeps flipping backwards and forwards, going back to the phil phil philosophical uh, assertion that there are certain logical impossibilities that can never be uh, possible. And then he gives us the other side and talks about, well, on the other hand, there are certain things that even though they seem to be logically impossible are within the realm of the possible. So examples of things that are absolutely impossible according to all men of speculation, according to all philosophers are the following se uh, several examples. The coming together of contraries at the same instant and at the same place. You cannot have the coexistence of up and down, of cold and hot, exactly at the same time. You cannot have a combination of, uh, of an infinite number of things at the same time and at the same place. Number two, the transmutation of substances such that the intrinsic essence becomes the attribute or vice versa. Here he's using Aristotelian terminology where we distinguish between something that is essential to the nature of the object and something which is merely just an attribute, let's say a color or the texture of it. You cannot switch the essential nature for the attribute or the attribute for the essential nature. Things don't change so radically um, just on the fly. Number three, the existence of a corporeal substance without attributes or what he calls accidents. Which means, and this is something that the Kalamists, some Kalamists asserted, was perhaps possible. But here the Rambam says that no one agrees that this is possible. You cannot have an atom or any kind of material substance that is completely devoid 
of any attributes. Perhaps that might exist conceptually, but it cannot exist in reality. Another example, the, the following four examples are impossibilities about God. And this really goes back to the omnipotence paradox. God can't bringing into existence another deity equivalent to himself. There cannot be a second God who is exactly like the God that we, we know, because by his very definition, God is unitary. And to, so to, to suggest that God can create a being that is equivalent to himself is a paradox. It's an omnipotence paradox. Uh, God cannot annihilate himself. God cannot become corporeal. And finally, God is not subject to any kind of change. Those are things which it seems that there's absolute consensus that none of these aforementioned ideas are within the realm of possibility and can never come into the realm of possibility because they simply don't, um, they, they, it, it's like saying that red can possibly be blue. In other words, by definition, that which is red is red and that which is blue is blue. And you can't say that something that is red can be blue because then you're just, you're manipulating language improperly, but it, it's, it's a, it becomes, um, it, it becomes nonsensical. It becomes a, a verbal absurdity to even suggest these things. But there are things that are disputed meaning that at first glance they seem logically impossible but at the same time the mind can conjure the imagination of such an idea and therefore there are people within the philosophical community especially the kalamists of the rambam's time some say that the, that certain things are possible and certain things are not possible so he gives us an example and he says um, as to uh, it is the idea of an attribute or an accident existing independent of a substance within which it can inhere. So for the, what he really means is just to give you an example, the the attribute of redness can redness exist independently of red material objects in our world. So this is a dispute, he says, whether the attribute of color or texture, or, or, or temperature, or, or, or weight, or volume, or anything like that, can those things exist in the abstract without attaching themselves to actual physical objects? So he says, it is true that those who assert it is possible are not led to this affirmation by speculation alone, but wish to safeguard thereby certain doctrinal issues of their religion that are violently rebutted by speculation. Now here, without going into the details of what the, of how this particular idea of an attribute or an accident existing independently of physical substances, you know, how does that present a challenge to a religious idea? We're not gonna get into that at this moment right now because I don't think, I, I think it'll lead us too far astray of our discussion. But what the Rambam is essentially saying here is something which I think is really at the crux of this very chapter. He's saying that there are philosophers who are of a religious nature, such as the Mutakalimun, the Kalamists, uh, who were either the earlier, earlier, earlier Kalamists were Christian, later Kalamists were Muslim, and they were led astray to come to certain philosophical conclusions because of certain theological underpinnings of their religion that sort of compelled them 
to manipulate their thinking into a certain direction. And the Rambam was so strident and ardent uh, in, his, in his belief that he would not allow himself to get caught in that web. And his, his really his major criticism or one of his major criticisms of the Kalam movement of his time, a certain school of philosophy, was that these people were not being intellectually honest because they were working with certain religious premises that sort of moved their ideas in a certain direction without being completely intellectually unbiased and completely honest and looking at things critically without being influenced by their religious um, theologies. Just to give you this idea, in the original text, we learned about this all the way back in section one, chapter 71. In the Pines edition, it's on pages 178 and 179, but for expediency, I hear, here we have in our handout the Friedlander translation, which the, the verb, the idea is the same, just the verbiage is slightly different. We merely maintain that the earlier theologians, both of the Greek Christians and of the Mohammedans, when they laid down their propositions, did not investigate the real properties of things. First of all, they considered what must be the properties of the things which should yield proof for or against a certain creed, a certain doctrine in their religion. And when this was found, they asserted that the thing must be endowed with those properties. Then they employed the same assertion as a proof for the identical arguments which had led to the assertion and by which they either supported or refuted a certain opinion. This course was followed by able men who originated this method and adopted it in their writings. They professed to be free from preconceived opinions and to have been led to a stated result by actual research. In other words, even though they were biased and they were led to certain conclusions because of their religious doctrines, they did not reveal that and instead um, dishonestly professed that they came to certain conclusions based upon speculation, honest and unbiased speculation alone. Therefore, when philosophers of, of a later date studied the same writings, they did not perceive the true character of the arguments. On the contrary, they found in the ancient work strong proofs and a valuable support for the acceptance or the rejection of certain opinions, and thus thought that, so far as religious principles were concerned, there was no necessity whatever to prove or refute any of their propositions, and that the first Mutakalimun had discussed these subjects with the sole object of defeating certain views of the philosophers and demonstrating the insufficiencies of their proofs. And so therefore, later people who read the earlier writings of these earlier philosophers, not realizing that they were based on certain uh, pre-existent biases to lead them to certain conclusions so that they could be consistent with their religious beliefs, thought mistakenly that these were just straightforward philosophical arguments to counteract, let's say, Aristotle. But it was not. Persons who hold this opinion do not suspect how much they are mistaken. For the first, Mutakalimun tried to prove a proposition when it was expedient to demonstrate its truth and to disprove it when its rejection was desirable. And when it was contrary to the opinion which they wished to uphold, although the contradiction might only become, the obvi become obvious after the application of a hundred successive propositions. In this manner, the earlier Mutakalimun effected a radical cure of the malady. And this was where he 
quoted this quote that we mentioned all the way back in chapter 71 of from Themistius. I tell you, however, as a general rule, that Themistius was right in saying that the properties of things cannot adapt themselves to our opinions, but our opinions must adapt to the existing properties. In other, wor in other words, you cannot make a bullseye and then draw the target around it. You have to draw the target and then shoot a bullseye. In the same way, there were philosophers who were intellectually dishonest, had to knew that they had to arrive at certain philosophical conclusions, and therefore created arguments to conform to those pre-existing conclusions that were based upon the constraints of their religious doctrines. Okay, the Rambam is basically saying that, getting back to our chapter, that I acknowledge that there were certain Kalamists who argued that there are certain things that are imaginable that one would think would be impossible, but nonetheless, they argue that they are in with, within the realm of possibility. But And I acknowledge that they do so because of certain religious predispositions that they harbor. And it seems that the Rambam is implying, I will not do the same. I And he said that explicitly back in section one. I will not get caught into that web. And yet, you know, it seems like he's walking a very, very narrow line. He's walking on thin ice here because really, essentially, when you get to the nitty gritty of what this whole section of the Rambam is about, is that he's going to be suggesting a certain sort of, let's say, logical paradox about God, who is both omnipotent and omniscient and allows for the existence of evil. That seems to be paradoxical to the very nature of God, and yet it is reconcilable based on the very same argument that he's suggesting now, that even though normally certain logical impossibilities cannot be applied to God, but there are certain logical impossibilities that can, uh, can be realized in the real world. So another issue which divides our religious community from the philosophers, and now he's talking about the Jewish community, is the possibility of creation ex nihilo which for, for philosophers is a logical impossibility, but for us it is within the realm of the possible. And this is the Rambam going back to what he had discussed at the, during the earlier sections of section two of the guide, where he talked about why Aristotle came to the conclusion of an eternal existence, why Judaism still nonetheless, despite the philosophical arguments to that, that sort of refute the possibility of, of create God sort of one day waking up, so to speak, and creating a universe, even though that seems from a philosophical standpoint, logically impossible, the Rambam had offered many arguments to the contrary, why it was actually possible and perhaps even was more logical than Aristotle's assertion of eternal existence. The philosophers similarly argue that certain mathematical propositions are logically impossible, such as a square whose diagonal is equal to one of the sides, or a corporeal cube surrounded by four corners that are equal in size to the cube. In other words, certain mathematical impossibilities. Those the Rambam seems to have no problem with, but you see he keeps swinging back and forth. He goes from things that are absolutely impossible, where we agree with the philosophers, and things which it's not so clear. Maybe yes, maybe no. Only ignorant people, he says, would refute these mathematical impossibilities. So the Rambam says, so I'm left ultimately with the question, where do we draw the line? 
when or to use the actual language of the of the Rambam himself in the text, he says on page 462, um, sorry, sorry, on, on page 460, would that I know whether this gate is open and legal so that everyone can claim and assert with regard to any notion, whatever that he conceives. Um, and, and say that this is possible, where someone else says, no, this is impossible because of the nature of the matter. In other words, or is there something that shuts and blocks this gate so that a man can assert decisively that such and such a thing is impossible because of its nature? What is the dividing line? It's really unclear, the Rambam. He says, I confess, I don't really have clarity on this matter when we must conclude that something is absolutely impossible outside the realm of existence, and when something, despite its illogic, could be realized in the real world because God is omnipotent. When is something so logically impossible that it can never exist according to anyone, and when is something, despite its illogic, when does it have the possibility of existing? And he says, if we use our intellect faculty alone, we arrive at one answer, that almost everything that is logically impossible cannot exist. But if we use our imagination faculty to imagine things outside reality, we arrive at the opposite answer. And since the imagination faculty is capable of, of sort of uh, allowing things that are logically impossible to exist within one's imagination, perhaps those things can be realized. Furthermore, how do we know for certain when, we are when what we are cognizing is from the intellect or the imagination faculty? When you and I uh, think of ideas, how do I even know whether the, the idea that I am cu currently conceiving is coming from my intellect and therefore is within the realm of possibility, or when it's coming from the imagination and therefore is outside the realm of possibility? Furthermore, what is it in the mind that divides between the intellectual and imaginative faculties? Is it the intellect itself or is it something outside the intellect? And the Rambam is really sort of throwing up a whole series of questions to allow for that murkiness to sort of cloud the water, so to speak, in order to be able to allow some reconcilability for the existence of evil and the perfection of God in all of his omnipotence and omniscience. And the conclusion, therefore, is some things are simply impossible and their existence cannot be admitted. So, for example, uh, you can never have a circle that has corners. You can never, God can never create a stone that is too heavy for him to lift. But there is disagreement on a group of concepts which some say are impossible and some say are possible. So we readily admit that even though philosophically it's illogical to suggest that an unchanging God would one day decide to create a change in all of reality, because that seems to be a paradox to God's immutability, his unchanging nature. Why would he all of a sudden one day decide to create? Um, and yet we believe it. It's an assertion from the Torah. And as the Rambam had, had argued throughout many chapters in section two of the guide, um, even though it presents itself as illogical, there are also many inconsistencies and flaws of logic to suggest what Aristotle had argued, that the world has eternally existed. And so this whole chapter is introductory in attempting to reconcile how God is omniscient and omnipotent and yet allows evil to exist in the world. 
So it's a relatively short chapter. I don't think that we need to dwell on this idea any further, but what I do find, I think what is especially salient and to me fascinating about this uh, particular chapter is number one, the equivocation that the Rambam demonstrates in really sort of throwing up his hands and saying, listen, we're never gonna get absolute clarity on this issue as to what things which are which seem to be logically impossible or paradoxical to God can exist and whether and, and what things simply cannot exist. But at the same time, the Rambam is hearkening back to his own criticism of the Mutakalimun, who were not intellectually honest because they came to certain conclusions based upon doctrinal issues that were pre-existent to their philosophical speculation. And therefore, the Rambam himself realizes the danger, uh, the inherent danger of trying to explain the existence of evil, um, uh, uh, you know, because on the one hand, biblically and Judaically, we know that God has created a system in the universe where good and evil are allowed to coexist. We also know based on the Bible and based upon everything that we know about the Jewish teachings of theism of God, that God is omniscient and omnipotent and absolutely good and perfect. And that seems to present a paradox. But at the same time, the Rambam is, is really sort of arguing in this chapter, my conclusion that God can allow for the existence of evil as which we'll discuss in the next chapter is not due to a lack of his knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, but rather, which we'll, we'll, we'll learn about in the next chapter, he is saying, I am not coming to this conclusion in the same intellectually dishonest way as the Mutakalimun, which I think is a, is a really, really interesting way of the Rambam sort of trying to protect himself from uh, his, his critics, from his, from his detractors, who would say that the Rambam is using the same intellectually dishonest methodology of those Mutakalimun uh, uh, against whom he was so critical. So it's an interesting uh, interesting sort of quandary that the Rambam finds himself in, but this is where we'll leave it for today, and hopefully we'll be able now to explore chapter 16 with this background with a little bit more uh, uh, interest and fascination. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you in the Yertzeh Hashem next time for chapter 16. Take care now.